0: Hello, you're listening to No Such Word As Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to sit down with someone I can't believe I haven't had on yet, if I'm being quite honest. I feel like I've had so many other researchers on. Welcome to the podcast, Austin Allen.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited to sit down and chat, but you've just uh, you've just moved to Europe. How are you finding it?
1: It's great. I'm, I'm loving the Danish summers. I haven't been through a winter yet, so we'll see how that goes.
0: I mean, is it even summer or is it just raining?
1: That, that's true. It is raining today.
0: <laughs> Same here in the Netherlands. But for anyone who doesn't know who you are or isn't familiar with your work, could you give yourself a brief introduction?
1: Sure. I I broadly study marine mammal physiology. I'm especially interested in how they move um, and how exercise physiology ties into conservation impacts, um, studying and developing tools that so we can understand how humans impact marine mammal populations to ultimately conserve them.
0: Did you always think this was where you were going to end up?
1: Both of my parents are veterinarians. Um, my dad's an equine vet and my mom is a marine mammal veterinarian. So I, I'd always been exposed to marine mammals, Um, but then, yeah, I'd I'd always I was interested in horses first, and then realized how amazing marine mammals are. And um, my my dad would often take me to the zoo, and he was working on a baby giraffe or a baby rhino, and I would be there beside him. Um, And then my mom took me to Randy Wells Project. When I was a teenager and I was saw what all these amazing researchers were doing and thought, I I want to do that.
0: What was it like as a child, kind of like going along to work with your parents like that? Like, what did your friends say? It must have been so cool.
1: Yeah, they they were all very jealous. And I think at the time I didn't quite realize how lucky and amazing um, it was. Looking back, I, I feel really, really fortunate to have those experiences.
0: So since you were a teenager, you've kind of thought that, yeah, research is the route that you wanted to go down. So how did you go about making that happen?
1: I went, um, I kind of did as many volunteer projects as I could. I did a little bit with dolphins, but um, really studied blue crabs in college. Um, And looking at how to affect bycatch and diamondback terrapins, a little species of estuarine turtle, and fell in love with research and designing experiments there. Then I kind of uh, took a couple years off after college to help my brother um, recover from an accident. And then I, after that, you know, decided I really want to pursue research again. And ended up doing a master's at duke university which turned into a phd at duke university and then now a postdoc Um,
0: going from strength to strength there um for someone who hasn't you know i didn't obviously didn't go down the research route i have worked with a lot of researchers in my career so far how do you choose what subjects you're going to study like for your thesis like either for your master's or for your phd like how does that come about are you told like hey these are some of the projects that we have open or do you pitch your own ideas
1: i think it's i think it really depends it's my past has definitely been a bit of both Mm. sometimes being lucky and in the right spot at the right time meeting the right person um sometimes it's just going to different researchers at a university or in the area you're in and saying what do you have going on how can i help you know i have a couple hours on the weekends can i come and volunteer in your lab Um, i i was really fortunate meeting um, andreas fallman on one of the sarasota projects and we were talking about this research we could do at dolphin quest and it kind of then i pitched that to um an advisor at a college and that's what led to the PhD project.
0: Tell us a little bit about the Sarasota projects.
1: Yeah, it's a really phenomenal environment. Those animals, um, that project's led by Randy Wells and they've been studied for over 50 years now. We know a ton about those animals, both through, they do lots of photo ID surveys throughout the year and then about once a year do more focused health assessments where we get a lot of information about the individuals but that wealth of knowledge allows it to translate to all sorts of species and populations around the world
0: is that when you really realized that you were passionate about marine mammals in particular
1: yeah i think so seeing seeing all these amazing veterinarians and conservation biologists and you know seeing you know of course you only see one side of life you don't see when they take the data back and go and you know crunch the numbers for the rest of the year um but I definitely thought that's what I want to do
0: and what's your favorite part of the research because yeah I think when you say at least to the people I've spoken to if you're like oh yeah I was talking to this researcher they do kind of picture you guys just like in a lab doing statistics but you guys get to do some pretty fun stuff too
1: Yeah, I, it definitely depends, you know, which lab and where you're at. Um, I, I probably spend maybe a month of the year, maybe two months out in the field with the animals, either in the zoos or out in the wild. And then the rest of the time working on the data and writing the papers. Um, but I, I feel really fortunate that I get to work both at the zoos and in the wild. Um, I, have met some amazing facilities and trainers and then been on some amazing health assessments around the world in the wild too.
0: Yeah, what would you say um is potentially the hardest part of research in the field?
1: Definitely I think the weather and knowing whether you're going to see the animals or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And on some two week projects where we saw animals for the first time on day you know 12 and we're still able to collect some great data those last few days but I, I do appreciate that now when I go to a facility I know I'm gonna get to interact with the animals and collect data.
0: Yeah you definitely um get a little bit more for your time uh you know you <laughs> go in you go like you're okay okay we're gonna do three sessions today and unless the animals are having a bad day you're gonna be like yeah we're gonna we're gonna get three sessions today. Um Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. So when did you start your metabolic research? Was that involved in your PhD?
1: Yes. Yes. That was, um, kind of half of my PhD. I started that in 2016 and we, um, Andreas and I, and, and my advisor, um, Andy Reed and others, um, we worked, we pitched this crazy idea to the dolphin quest trainers and, you know, they, they thought about it a little bit and go, yeah, that's that's tough, but we, I think we can do it. Um, I always think the trainers have a much harder job than the researchers, you know. I think every it.
0: every researcher that comes on this podcast says that.
1: <laughs> I, I think it's so true. Um, yeah, it's so what we, we
0: love to do, right? <laughs> we we love training; it's a challenge.
1: Yeah, I, and I feel like the harder the project is, the more excited the trainers get about it.
0: Oh, for sure. Especially when you're talking about killer rails, like those guys need a challenge. Like most of the time Mm -hmm. we're struggling to come up with something to teach them. So when a researcher is like, Hey, can you do this? But then we also need this and this and this, like the harder it gets. We're like, yeah, absolutely. Please give it to us because these animals need the mental stimulation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So the, um, I can go into the dolphin part. Um, we, so these you probably, and listeners may be familiar with these biologging devices. We work a lot with these suction cup attached movement tags that have been put on dozens of cetacean species over the last few decades and record and really fine scale how they move, but we wanted to better convert that movement into energy and kind of the, the broad 30,000 foot picture is that you know we know when a dolphin gets hit or a cetacean gets hit by a boat or entangled in a fishing line and they're killed, we know that effect on the population. But it's really, we're trying to also understand those cumulative sublethal impacts on populations. And energy, energetics is one of the most direct ways of looking at that. So to do that, we need to know how much energy they spend And so that was kind of the question uh, that we focused on. And so then, yeah, we had this uh, flow meter device that measures oxygen consumption and asks the dolphins to either be at rest or hold their breath and swim and breathe into this device while wearing the tag so that we could then convert those tag data that's already been collected in the wild into energy use.
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And if anyone listening to this hasn't already listened to Andreas Falman's episode, you should definitely go and listen to that because he goes into so much detail about the dolphins. Um, but Austin has been studying the big dolphins, um, the killer whales at Laurel Park and also at Marineland. So at what point did you think, hey, let's extrapolate some of this research and also study orcas?
1: Yeah, the... But- seeing how often these energy models are being used in the wild setting on a whole bunch of different species it was really clear to us that you know having this correlation for dolphins is great but we need a bigger animal so that we can then interpolate across species between dolphins and killer whales and even extrapolate to bigger whales um, because these these methods are already being used so if we can make them more accurate that mm-hmm. would be better for legislators that are already making decisions on which how to conserve populations based on these models so yeah, let's,
0: let's do let's do a little segue before we actually get into the killer whale stuff like the research that you guys obviously have already done with dolphins how is that being used um in the wild
1: Yeah we um Andreas just uh, led a paper um, that just came out looking at the effects of Using those equations, uh, looking at the differences between shallow and deep diving dolphins, mm-hmm. which I'm, you know, they they're so different. They're they're built so differently. It's they're really incredible. One, you know, spends a lot of their life in several meter, you know, ten meters of water, and the other can dive down to 1, um, a thousand meters. They're just a bit a difference. Yeah. Um, and then I, for my dissertation, I applied that to look at what are the cumulative impacts of avoiding boats in the Sarasota population of bottlenose mm-hmm. dolphins. And um, so that those are just a couple examples, but we're we're already finding you know people are using it for other things too. Can you
0: explain some of the findings from the boat avoidance?
1: Yeah, so there this. The population in Sarasota lives in a very um, developed environment. On average, they're approached within 100 meters, 300 feet of a boat during the daylight every six minutes, on average. So, just over and over and over. Wow. So, I'd been reading papers in, in this and other species that have said, okay, we notice that the whale or dolphin swims faster sometimes when a boat comes by and the end of the paper always says this could have energetic costs this mm. could have an energetic impact so we were excited to say okay we have this really long-term record of tags that have been deployed in this population in the last 10 years so let's listen on the tags for when a boat is present mm-hmm. and then look at what the animal whether they swim faster or not And using that correlation from dolphin quest, then apply that over the times when boats are present and when they weren't present. And what we actually found in that population was really surprising that there wasn't a big difference. Um, And, you know, thinking on it further, that it may not be surprising because the dolphins that are most susceptible may have left the area, although that's you know not as likely it's probably more likely that they're very finally aware of which boats they need to actually swim faster to avoid or not mm. they're not gonna just swim faster when every approaching um, potentially some level
0: of like desensitization going on there
1: yeah yeah but yeah potentially or or just yeah De- yeah desensitizing to the boats where they're pretty sure that they're yeah. not going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say boats don't have a big effect on the population, just that swimming faster doesn't seem to be using they don't seem to be using more calories swimming faster to avoid the boats in mm-hmm. in that one population,
0: yeah. And what are your thoughts with regards to other populations?
1: yeah, we'd we'd love to look at populations that where the presence of vessels approaching them is more recent where they might Mm -hmm. not have had as much time to adjust. Um, So I I think that'll be a really interesting area looking forward. You know, the the health compromised population in Louisiana affected by the Deepwater Horizon oil spill or others like that.
0: Yeah, I'm even just thinking about my recent trip home to Scotland. And one of the best places to spot common dolphin is actually just when you're on the ferry. Um, because obviously the ferry going back and forth between the two islands, it's the same route all the time. Like they do not deviate from where they go. Um, and the dolphins will pretty much consistently come and ride in the wake of the boat. Whereas if you go out on like dolphin watching boats or fishing boats, you're much less likely to see them. So what you said is super interesting. It's like, are the dolphins really aware that they know where that ferry is going? and where it's going to be and they might just be more comfortable being around it because they see it every day like multiple times a day compared to the smaller boats that change their path constantly that's interesting
1: yeah the yeah those especially jet skis i found have a really strong avoidance response mm. because they're really not sure where they're going
0: yeah like they're super mobile they can turn really quickly yeah definitely for sure that's so interesting I've I've that's some that's a part of it I've never thought about before but I think and
1: they, and they do get hit by boats so I, I definitely don't want to minimize you know the impact oh, of definitely
0: boats. yeah no, no 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 for sure and I think it has really interesting um connotations for the whale watching industry you know it's often said that the whale watching industry is potentially better than going to visit these animals in zoos and aquariums. At least that's a narrative that I've heard frequently. Um, and it's interesting to talk to researchers who have experience out there in the field and saying, well, actually it might not be. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. the You know, just, I was thinking of the spinner dolphins in Hawaii and just, there's, there's so many populations where there's, the the effort of whale watching on relatively few individuals is is so high and I think we, we really need to be careful about the regulations to make sure that we're not stressing them out just you know yeah it, it's different between a boat just passing by and a boat that's following the animal and I think it it can be done right but it, it can also hurt, be harassing the animals.
0: It's also hard to regulate, you mm-hmm. know. You could, obviously you you have to have some amount of trust in the captain that's you know driving the boat and is going to adhere to the correct laws and practices. But once you get out there, you know, depending on how far out you're going, you know, for some um, boats, it's kind of like, well, no one's watching. There's no one out here, and I've got a bunch of tourists on my boat that want to see whales, so I'm gonna bit go a bit closer. So, yeah, it's definitely something that that needs to be watched. But for anyone listening who isn't aware of what's going on with the spinner dolphins in Hawaii, could you elaborate
1: i'm i I need to I need to catch up on that a little bit more. Um, there's been some recent regulations protecting them, but i i'm I'm not sure what the actual final NOAA fisheries rules were. um I was reading the proposed rules, but yeah, i i I would definitely look at um certification programs whenever you go on a whale watching program.
0: yeah um,
1: and there there are there are certification programs out there, and I would really look at those carefully,
0: yeah, just to make sure you're choosing the right tour company. If you are going to go out whale watching, make sure you're doing it, you know, with the right people. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's really interesting that you are starting to gather some data on larger mammals to try and obviously extrapolate that to larger whales in the wild so what was it like for you because you started at laurel park first of all and then you went to Marineland, right or the yeah, other way
1: around. Right? doing working with them both um pretty much at the same time
0: okay so um, what was it like for you the first time starting to research with going from dolphins to killer whales
1: yeah i i knew they were larger you know and i've seen them <laughs> in videos and and from far away but being you know a couple feet away I mm. still check my breath away how large and and just how the movements you know at least right there next to the poolside are so much slower than the dolphins movements um, yeah but-
0: it, it definitely it's very different seeing them like in a stadium or seeing them two feet in front of your face mm-hmm. that but size difference becomes quickly apparent
1: Yeah, I I was, it was, it was amazing just being that, that close to them and seeing, but also just seeing how, like, I don't know, they just, how engaged they were in the project. There's just, you could tell there was so much that they were evaluating about what you were doing and everything.
0: Yeah. So what, were you studying all of the individuals at Laurel Park when you were there?
1: Uh, no, we were focused, um, on that trip, on, um, Adana and Tacoa. But hoping, um, when I go back in a couple weeks, um, to work with some additional individuals.
0: Was there a reason that you focused primarily on Adan and Takoa? Was it because they thought they would, those two individuals would do better with the training first?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of with, with the flow meter that we're having over the blowhole and the size mm-hmm. of the animals. Um, we're still, I think we've modified the flow meter to work with larger whales, mm-hmm. um, So we were starting with smaller whales that breathe, you know, they breathe relatively slower, which is still insanely forceful.
0: Mm -hmm. Were there any issues with like this, the spirometer getting blown away?
1: (laughs) Uh, no, it, it, yeah, it took some, some trial and error getting the, holding the silicone piece that that goes against the skin, getting Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, figuring out how to hold it over the whale is is a logistical. Uh, yeah,
0: sure. yeah. I remember we used to do. Oh, they'll still do it. The um, the blowhole samples. So you'll take like a petri dish, and hold it over the blowhole, obviously. Um, and I still remember it. Did you work with Huli? Is Huli still there? William? Uh,
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: Um, I still have picture clear as day in my head during a show we were demonstrating that, and he wasn't holding onto it properly and it went flying this Petri dish and he was it was so comical he was like on the slide out like trying to like a cartoon like trying to catch this Petri dish out of the air um I think it landed like just on the side somewhere um but yeah very forceful um exhales from the killer rails so um give us a little bit of information of like the day-to-day how you would go about collecting that data with a killer rail
1: yeah it's it was kind of a complicated experimental design, and then of course we say, and they can't have any food until after the experiment is completely done, which is it makes it even more challenging um, because they need to be um, they need to be completely fasted so that we know that and in the increase in metabolic rate we see when swimming isn't due to the extra cost of digesting the food. Mm, okay. Our, you know, after in the, in the States, after Thanksgiving dinner, like you're, you know, you get really warm because you've eaten all this food and it's partly it's your body spending energy to digest the food. Um, but anyway, so we do that. So we do the experiments first thing in the morning, we come in, we ask the animal to rest by the side of the pool for 15 minutes, breathing into this device so we can measure their baseline metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. And then ask them to hold their breath while wearing the tag and swim for three minutes and then come back. Underwater. Underwater, no, no breathing. Um mm-hmm. swim for three minutes, come back and then breathe for 15 minutes into the device.
0: Okay. So like one full test session there is like 40 minutes long.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's it's a lot.
0: It is. And um, honestly, I think I'm going to take this moment to say, we don't need fish.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was- <laughs> that, that
0: we are doing all of this with no primary reinforcement, um, because you guys don't need them to eat. So first thing in the morning, these guys haven't had their breakfast yet. And they're participating in all of this research completely willingly. And obviously, they'll get reinforced for it afterwards. But that's just a nice little, uh, nice little side note that we can manage to get in there
1: yeah and and we even we even did some trials with some some food before the swim portion yeah. and it was kind of more distracting to the whole process and the the whales you know were like oh we, we don't really need that we'll we'll wait till the the end
0: yeah you often find that i don't i don't know if that's a killer real thing um but we had the same issue with the well not really issue with the creativity research um from dr hill um and. If we tried to reinforce them, they were like, oh, why? Like, this is like, we'd rather just keep doing this. Like, can you just reinforce me after 20 minutes, please? Um, mm-hmm. Which is really interesting. Did you get any significant differences between Tekoa and Adan? Because Takoa obviously, is significantly older, a little bit larger. They're both male. Um, but were there any interesting differences?
1: Yeah, the um, Adan's was actually a bit lower than Tacoa's the metabolic, resting metabolic rate, which as a smaller, younger animal, you're expecting um, higher metabolic rate. We we think it might just be that Adan was so relaxed and calm and sort of, you know, <laughs> med- meditating during it. Um, yeah. so Tekoa
0: is a little bit of an anxious animal. So he probably, he's probably in his brain, like burning, burning a little bit more calories because he's like stressing slightly. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Adan, Adan's pretty chill.
1: Yeah, so we're we're gonna we're gonna go back and collect some more data and make sure that that was a, a accurate finding.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, what animals did you study at Marineland?
1: Um, primarily Ko, Wiki, and Inuk.
0: Okay, so yeah, Ko and Inuk kind of similar sizes and sex to tokoa and Adan, but good that you finally got a female. Were there any differences with Wiki?
1: No, and and what well, we broadly been finding is that um female cetacean energetics really go up the the biggest increases during lactation which yeah and and people have known from calorie intake and stuff but so yeah we we didn't really see a big male female difference
0: okay that's interesting so more potentially due to age did kayo and adan match at all
1: uh yeah yeah pretty close which was great um
0: yeah. What about Inuk and Takoa? Because Inuk's uh, super chill.
1: Yeah. Inuk was very, and the trainers were saying that Inuk sort of took this time to just really relax and just, I, I think Inuk could teach a meditation class or something. He, he's, he was, he's a
0: teddy bear. He, he is yeah. just like, you can just love on him. Like I remember I used to watch like SeaWorld DVDs and trainers would be like oh you can just love on him for hours and i'd be like really can you like inuk is that animal like if Mm -hmm. you just sat with him and gave him attention for like an hour he would just sit there he would just Mm -hmm. be like yes this is great please let's chill out together
1: whereas ko is kind of funny because sometimes the trainers would um end up passing a leaf to him and then he slowly close his mouth and push the leaf back to them and then he was like okay i kind of need something else to do rather than just sit here
0: yeah ko's um ko's extremely playful like Mm -hmm. adhd little boy that's ko um in the best way he's just amazing um to work with wiki's my favorite though gotta say Mm -hmm. gotta say how was she with the training was she like i'm over it
1: no, she she was she was pretty great. I I think KO Ko was amazing because KO went from, you know, at first not understanding the project as much as the others to really excelling at it. So it was really cool to see that that change over the couple trips.
0: Yeah, KO is a little bit of a research star. He's gonna be um in a lot of publications, I think he's a mm-hmm. he's he takes to once he gets it, he really gets it. Like he's like, I'm gonna run with it now. Um but yeah, so was it the findings that you wanted in the beginning to kind of keep the project going?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, and, and it's still preliminary. We're still doing a couple more trips, but mm-hmm. we definitely see we see an increase in metabolic rate with the uh, um, acceleration recorded on the tag as expected. So um, that that was really exciting. And then there's only been a couple studies of a couple individual whales trying to measure resting metabolic rate. So even getting even six whales, understanding the cost to be a killer whale and then understanding the cost to swim as a killer mm-hmm. whale is going to be really exciting. Both of those are going to feed into different types of bioenergetic models.
0: Yeah. And you know, obviously we we spoke about how that could help their wild counterparts, which I think is really important because we say that a lot. And, you know, our guests that come to visit are told, like, yes, we use the research to help wild killer whales. But I think often they maybe don't understand the specifics of that, like how much what we do really can help and have an impact. Um, But I really feel like this project, and I spoke about this with Andreas as well, can have really significant changes on what we do in managed care with our whales, just based on what we feed them. much we feed them when we feed them you know depending on their age their sex their activity levels what's going on in the environment around them i think it's going to be incredibly useful
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I, i think i think it'll help both both whales in professional care and whales in the wild
0: for sure and um what are your next steps so you're going back to lower park and i assume you're also going back to Marineland.
1: I, I think we've, I think we've collected, um, we did three trips to Marine land and one trip to Laura park so far. So I think, I think, I think we have, I'm still analyzing the data, but I think we have enough at Marine land, even though I really want to go back. Um, but so I think we'll do a couple, couple more trips to Laura park this fall. And then I have a lot of, a lot of analyzing ahead of me
0: yeah well i wish you the absolute best of luck with it because these projects are so important but austin thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to come and chat with me and sit down and explain all of this i'm sure everyone has learned something today
1: thank you yeah it was great it was great talking with you i, I think as these technologies increase this thinking of biologging specifically the need to iteratively improve them working with zoos is only going to be more important.
0: Absolutely. Well, Austin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will catch you all next week.